Chapters 41 through 50 of Against Celsus, Book 3, by Origen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. But since he has charged us, I know not how often already, quote, with regarding this Jesus, who was but a mortal body as a god, and with supposing that we act piously in so doing, end quote, it is superfluous to say any more in answer to this, as a great deal has been said in the preceding pages. And yet let those who make this charge understand that he whom we regard and believe to have been from the beginning God and the Son of God is the very Logos and the very Wisdom and the very Truth. And with respect to his mortal body and the human soul which it contained, we assert that not by their communion merely with him, but by their unity and intermixture, they received the highest powers and after participating in his divinity were changed into god and if any one should feel a difficulty at our saying this regarding his body let him attend to what is said by the greeks regarding matter which properly speaking being without qualities receives such as the creator desires to invest it with and which frequently divests itself of those which it formerly possessed and assumes others of a different and higher kind and if these opinions be correct what is there wonderful in this that the mortal quality of the body of jesus if the providence of god has so willed it should have been changed into one that was ethereal and divine celsus then does not speak as a good reasoner when he compares the mortal flesh of jesus to gold and silver and stone asserting that the former is more liable to corruption than the latter for to speak correctly that which is incorruptible is not more free from corruption than another thing which is incorruptible nor that which is corruptible more liable to corruption than another corruptible thing but admitting that there are degrees of corruptibility we can say in answer that if it is possible for the matter which underlies all qualities to exchange some of them how should it be impossible for the flesh of jesus also to exchange qualities and to become such as it was proper for a body to be which had its abode in the ether and the regions above it and possessing no longer the infirmities belonging to the flesh and those properties which celsus terms quote, impurities end quote. and in so terming them speaks unlike a philosopher for that which is properly impure is so because of its wickedness now the nature of body is not impure for in so far as it is bodily nature it does not possess vice which is the generative principle of impurity but as he had a suspicion of the answer which we would return he says with respect to the change of the body of jesus quote, well after he has laid aside these qualities he will be a god end quote. and if so why not rather aesculapius and dionysus and hercules to which we reply quote, what great deed has aesculapius or dionysus or hercules wrought end quote. and what individuals will they be able to point out as having been improved in character and made better by their words and lives so that they may make good their claim to be gods for let us peruse the many narratives regarding them and see whether they were free from licentiousness or injustice or folly or cowardice and if nothing of that kind be found in them 
the argument of celsus might have force which places the forenamed individuals upon an equality with jesus but if it is certain that although some things are reported of them as reputable they are recorded nevertheless to have done innumerable things which are contrary to right reason how could you any longer say with any show of reason that these men on putting aside their mortal body became gods rather than jesus he next says of us that quote, we ridicule those who worship jupiter because his tomb is pointed out in the island of crete and yet we worship him who rose from the tomb although ignorant of the grounds on which the cretans observe such a custom End quote. observe now that he thus undertakes the defence of the cretans and of jupiter and of his tomb alluding obscurely to the allegorical notions in conformity with which the myth regarding jupiter is said to have been invented while he assails us who acknowledge that our jesus has been buried indeed but who maintain that he has also been raised from the tomb a statement which the cretans have not yet made regarding jupiter but since he appears to admit that the tomb of jupiter is in crete when he says that quote, we are ignorant of the grounds on which the cretans observe such a custom end quote, we reply that callimachus the cyrenian who had read innumerable poetic compositions and nearly the whole of greek history was not acquainted with any allegorical meaning which was contained in the stories about jupiter and his tomb and accordingly he accuses the cretans in his hymn addressed to jupiter in the words quote, the cretans are always liars for thy tomb o king the cretans have reared and yet thou didst not die for thou ever livest End quote. now he who said quote, thou didst not die for thou ever livest End quote, in denying that jupiter's tomb was in crete records nevertheless that in jupiter there was the beginning of death but birth upon earth is the beginning of death and his words run quote, and rhea bore thee among the paratians whereas he ought to have seen after denying that the birth of jupiter took place in crete because of his tomb that it was quite congruous with his birth in arcadia that he who was born should also die and the following is the manner in which callimachus speaks of these things quote, o jupiter some say that thou wert born on the mountains of ida others in arcadia which of them o father have lied the cretans are always liars end quote, etc now it is celsus who makes us discuss these topics by the unfair manner in which he deals with jesus in giving his assent to what is related about his death and burial but regarding as an invention his resurrection from the dead although this was not only foretold by innumerable prophets but many proofs also were given of his having appeared after death after these points celsus quotes some objections against the doctrine of jesus made by a very few individuals who are considered christians not of the more intelligent as he supposes but of the more ignorant class and asserts that quote, the following are the rules laid down by them let no one come to us who has been instructed or who is wise or prudent for such qualifications are deemed evil by us but if there be any ignorant or unintelligent or uninstructed or foolish persons let them come with confidence by which words acknowledging that such individuals are worthy of their god they manifestly show that they desire and are able to gain over only the silly and the mean and the stupid with women and children End quote. 
in reply to which we say that, as if, while Jesus teaches continence and says, quote, Whosoever looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath already committed adultery with her in his heart, end quote. One were to behold a few of those who are deemed to be Christians living licentiously, he would most justly blame them for living contrary to the teaching of Jesus, but would act most unreasonably if he were to charge the gospel with their censurable conduct. So, if he found, nevertheless, that the doctrine of the Christians invites men to wisdom, the blame then must remain with those who rest in their own ignorance and who utter not what Celsus relates, for although some of them are simple and ignorant, they do not speak so shamelessly as he alleges, but other things of much less serious import, which, however, serve to turn aside men from the practice of wisdom. But that, the object of Christianity, is that we should become wise, can be proved not only from ancient Jewish writings, which we also use, but especially from those which were composed after the time of Jesus, and which are believed among the churches to be divine. Now in the 50th Psalm, David is described as saying in his prayer to God these words, quote, The unseen and secret things of thy wisdom thou hast manifested to me. End quote. Solomon too, because he asked for wisdom, received it. And if any one were to peruse the Psalms, he would find the book filled with many maxims of wisdom, and the evidences of his wisdom may be seen in his treatises which contain a great amount of wisdom expressed in few words, and in which you will find many laudations of wisdom and encouragements towards obtaining it. So wise, moreover, was Solomon that, quote, the queen of Sheba, having heard his name and the name of the Lord, came to try him with difficult questions, and spake to him all things whatsoever were in her heart, and Solomon answered her all her questions. There was no question omitted by the king, which he did not answer her, and the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the possessions which he had, and there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, The report is true which I heard in mine own land regarding thee and thy wisdom, and I believed not them who told me until I had come, and mine eyes have seen it. And lo, they did not tell me the half. Thou hast added wisdom and possessions above all the report which I heard. End quote. It is recorded also of him that, quote, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore, and the wisdom that was in Solomon greatly excelled the wisdom of all the ancients and of all the wise men of Egypt, and he was wiser than all men, even than Gethan the Israelite, and Imad, and Chalcadi, and Aradab the sons of Madi, and he was famous among all the nations round about. And Solomon spake three thousand proverbs, and his songs were five thousand. And he spake of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop, which springeth out of the wall, and also of fishes, and of beasts. And all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and from all the kings of the earth, who had heard of the fame of his wisdom. End quote. And to such a degree does the gospel desire that there should be wise men among believers that for the sake of exercising the understanding of its hearers, it has spoken certain truths in enigmas, others in what are called dark sayings, others in parables, and others in problems. And one of the prophets, Hosea, says at the end of his prophecies, quote, Who is wise, and he will understand these things, or prudent, 
and he shall know them. End quote. Daniel, moreover, with his fellow captives, made such progress in the learning which the wise men around the king of Babylon cultivated that they were shown to excel all of them in a tenfold degree. And in the book of Ezekiel, it is said to the ruler of Tyre, who greatly prided himself on his wisdom, quote, Art thou wiser than Daniel? Every secret was not revealed to thee. End quote. And if you come to the books written after the time of Jesus, you will find that those multitudes of believers who hear the parables are, as it were, without, and worthy only of exoteric doctrines, while the disciples learn in private the explanation of the parables. For, privately, to his own disciples did Jesus open up all things, esteeming above the multitudes those who desire to know his wisdom. And he promises to those who believe upon him to send them wise men and scribes, saying, quote, Behold, I will send unto you wise men and scribes, and some of them they shall kill and crucify. End quote. And Paul also, in the catalogue of Charismata, bestowed by God, placed first, quote, the word of wisdom, end quote, and second, as being inferior to it, quote, the word of knowledge, end quote, but third, the lower down, quote, faith, end quote. And because he regarded the word as higher than miraculous powers, he for that reason places workings of miracles and gifts of healing in a lower place than the gifts of the word. And in the Acts of the Apostles, Stephen bears witness to the great learning of Moses, which he had obtained wholly from ancient writings not accessible to the multitude. For he says, quote, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. End quote. And therefore, with respect to his miracles, it was suspected that he wrought them perhaps not in virtue of his professing to come from God, but by means of his Egyptian knowledge in which he was well versed. For the king, entertaining such a suspicion, summoned the Egyptian magicians and wise men and enchanters who were found to be of no avail as against the wisdom of Moses, which proved superior to all the wisdom of the Egyptians. But it is probable that what is written by Paul in the first epistle to the Corinthians as being addressed to the Greeks, who prided themselves greatly on their Grecian wisdom, has moved some to believe that it was not the object of the gospel to win wise men. Now let him, who is of this opinion, understand that the gospel, as censuring wicked men, says of them that they are wise not in things which relate to the understanding and which are unseen and eternal, but that in busying themselves about things of sense alone and regarding these as all-important, they are wise men of the world. For as there are in existence a multitude of opinions, some of them espousing the cause of matter and bodies, and asserting that everything is corporal which has a substantial existence, and that, besides these, nothing else exists, whether it be called invisible or incorporal, it says also that these constitute the wisdom of the world, which perishes and fades away, and belongs only to this age, while those opinions which raise the soul from things here to the blessedness which is with God and to his kingdom, and which teach men to despise all sensible and visible things as existing only for a season, and to hasten unto things invisible, and to have regard to those things which are not seen, these, it says, constitute the wisdom of God. But Paul, as a lover of truth, says of certain wise men among the Greeks, when their statements are true, that, quote, although they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, end quote. 
and he bears witness that they knew God, and says, too, that this did not happen to them without divine permission in these words, quote, For God showed it unto them, end quote, dimly alluding, I think, to those who ascend from things of sense to those of the understanding, when he adds, quote, For the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because that, when they knew God, glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful. End quote. And perhaps also from the words, quote, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and the base things, and the things which are despised, God hath chosen, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh may glory in his presence. End quote. Some have been led to suppose that no one who is instructed, or wise, or prudent, embraces the gospel. Now in answer to such an one, we would say that it has not been stated that, quote, no wise man according to the flesh, end quote, but that, quote, not many wise men according to the flesh, end quote, are called. It is manifest, further, that amongst the characteristic qualifications of those are termed bishops, Paul, in describing what kind of man the bishop ought to be, lays down as a qualification that he should also be a teacher, saying that he ought to be able to convince the gainsayers that by the wisdom which is in him he may stop the mouths of foolish talkers and deceivers. And as he selects for the episcopate a man who has been once married, rather than he who has twice entered the married state, and a man of blameless life, rather than one who is liable to censure, and a sober man, rather than one who is not such, and a prudent man, rather than one who is not prudent, and a man whose behavior is decorous, rather than he who is open to the charge even of the slightest indecorum. So he desires that he who is to be chosen by preference for the office of a bishop should be apt to teach and able to convince the gainsayers. How then can Celsus justly charge us with saying, quote, let no one come to us who is instructed or wise or prudent, end quote. Nay, let him who wills come to us instructed and wise and prudent, and nonetheless, if any one be ignorant and unintelligent and uninstructed and foolish, let him also come, for it is these whom the gospel promises to cure when they come by rendering them all worthy of God. This statement also is untrue that it is, quote, only foolish and low individuals and persons devoid of perception and slaves and women and children of whom the teachers of the divine word wish to make converts, end quote. Such indeed does the gospel invite in order to make them better, but it invites also others who are very different from these, since Christ is the Savior of all men, and especially of them that believe, whether they be intelligent or simple, and, quote, He is the propitiation with the Father for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, end quote. After this, it is superfluous for us to wish to offer a reply to such statements of Celsus as the following, quote, for why is it an evil to have been educated and to have studied the best opinions and to have both the reality and appearance of wisdom? What hindrance does this offer to the knowledge of God? Why should it not rather be an assistance 
and a means by which one might be better able to arrive at the truth. End quote. Truly, it is no evil to have been educated, for education is the way to virtue, but to rank those amongst the number of the educated who hold erroneous opinions is what even the wise men among the Greeks would not do. On the other hand, who would not admit that to have studied the best opinions is a blessing? But what shall we call the best save those which are true and which incite men to virtue? Moreover, it is an excellent thing for a man to be wise, but not to seem so, as Celsus says, and it is no hindrance to the knowledge of God, but an assistance, to have been educated, and to have studied the best opinions, and to be wise. And it becomes us rather than Celsus to say this, especially if it be shown that he is an Epicurean. But let us see what those statements of his are which follow next in these words, quote, Nay, we see, indeed, that even those individuals who in the marketplaces perform the most disgraceful tricks and who gather crowds around them would never approach an assembly of wise men nor dare to exhibit their arts among them. But wherever they see young men and a mob of slaves and a gathering of unintelligent persons, thither they thrust themselves in and show themselves off. End quote. Observe now how he slanders us in these words, comparing us to those who in the marketplaces perform the most disreputable tricks and gather crowds around them. What disreputable tricks, pray, do we perform? Or what is there in our conduct that resembles theirs, seeing that by means of readings and explanations of the things read, we lead men to the worship of the God of the universe and to the cognate virtues, and turn them away from contemning deity and from all things contrary to right reason? Philosophers verily would wish to collect together such hearers of their discourses as exhort men to virtue, a practice which certain of the cynics especially have followed, who converse publicly with those whom they happen to meet. Will they maintain, then, that these who do not gather together persons who are considered to have been educated, but who invite and assemble hearers from the public street, resemble those who in the marketplaces perform the most disreputable tricks and gather crowds around them? Neither Celsus, however, nor any one who holds the same opinions will blame those who, agreeably to what they regard as a feeling of philanthropy, address their arguments to the ignorant populace. End of chapters 41 through 50 of Against Celsus, Book 3 by Origen, read by David Ronald.